Hello everyone and welcome back to Pod SciSci, a podcast where we discuss all things Cog SciSci related. My name is Shelley. And I'm Rachel. And we're two teachers who are part of the group Cog SciSci, which stands for Cognitive Science in Science Education. This is a group of science teachers who are all excited and passionate about using evidence-based pedagogy in our everyday classrooms to enhance teaching and learning. So we've been going through our mini-series on Rosenstein's Principles of Education. So in the last two episodes, we explore the ideas of effective explanations and also checking for understanding. And in today's episode, we'll be looking at the third and last aspect of Rosenstein's Principles, which is the concept of independent practice. And on that note, we'd like to welcome Adam Robbins, who has kindly agreed to share his expertise on this topic. So some of you already know Adam, as he's the managing editor of Cox SI and author of the book Middle Leadership Mastery. He's written loads on many aspects of Coxi, including independent practice, so it'd be great to hear more from him in today's episode. So thank you, Adam, for being here. No problem. Thanks for having me. So I suppose the first thing is, um, Rachel's just given a a brief introduction to yourself, but maybe it'd be good to hear a bit more about how you got involved in Coxi-Sci and... um, you know things about we've all read lots of your can't speak today um blogs uh your books um we've used your booklets all these sorts of things so just tell us a bit more about what you've been up to with cog sci stuff uh okay um i was trying to think i can't actually remember how i got involved in cog sci exactly uh i remember it was probably something to do with um reading some blogs along the way i think something to do with bob pritchard did a blog that I was really interested in. And um, I remember I was invited to talk at a Pixel conference. It was like a big deal for me. It was like, you know, a thousand people in the room and I was going to do this five minute talk. And um, in the green room where all the speakers were, uh, in popped this bloke called Adam Boxer. And um, we, we got chatting and, you know, we found out we were quite uh, aligned in certain things that were really interesting. And I think that's where I kind of got more involved when, you know, I got to know like uh, Bob and Ruth and Adam a little bit more. And then was that when you were both head of science or what were you doing at that time? Yeah, I probably was. I was head of science. He wasn't. He was a young wonderkind, uh, (laughs) you know, just blogging his way through the stratosphere. Um, I think he was just doing work on... uh, cognitive load theory and practicals and the slow practical work and things like that, that he was doing. I think he was a key stage three lead, maybe at his school or something like that. Um, I think I just become head of science. So it was quite a while ago now. Um, and we were just, yeah, we was just kind of getting to know people. And Adam did a huge amount of work getting the website up and running, uh, kind of the year before I took over as managing editor. And then he got too busy with other things taken off. And so I offered my services to help out. And then, uh, you know, that's history, I suppose. I just try and make sure we keep the wheels turning and everyone gets what they need. And, um, you know, it's not agenda driven. It's just kind of let's try and be as democratic as possible. And, uh, yeah, I'm just there to help people out, I suppose. Yeah. And that's what I was about to say. Something that we've not mentioned yet is is the role that you play in the conferences as well and Mm, doing a lot of work to, to put those together. So thanks for that. Yeah, I mean, it's good fun, isn't it? It's a good excuse to meet people that are kind of like-minded, a uh, good excuse to help introduce ideas to um, new teachers that maybe haven't had a chance to do them. And it's also just really important to make sure there's something at the grassroots level that's not expensive, that's not run by um, like anyone that's trying to make a profit out of it or is not trying to 
uh, maybe uh, corner a market or kind of mm. palm things off. We have a bit of sponsorship, um, but we try and make sure it's as least invasive as possible. It's just companies that want to show things and, and talk about things. And it's not kind of deliberately uh, obtuse and obstructive to the kind of grassroots. We love new speakers. We love uh, people that are blogging for the first time. We like to try and support them as much as possible to get as many different voices out there as we can. And, you know, and ideally from people that are teachers teaching in real classrooms in real context, so they can share their experience. Yeah, I mean yeah. that's that's why I'm here pretty much because of a conversation I had with you at, at the conference. So. I can vouch he's not he's not lying when he talks about that <laughs> <laughs> yeah it is great and I'm really looking forward to the next conference that we'll have in the coming years Anyways, and St. Um, yeah. yeah it'll be great we need to talk more about it uh when the time comes to do a bit more promotion anyways let's actually go straight into what we're going to be thinking about today so um so like I said earlier it's going to be looking at the Rosenstein's principle so there's loads in them but we kind of think that there are we, we kind of categorize them into three things which is uh, explanations, checking for understanding, and then independent practice. So, Adam, can you tell us a little bit more about like what counts as independent practice, and also why is it important? Uh, yeah, I think it's worth kind of leaning on uh, some of the heavy hitters here. So, we've got Rosenstein. He's a guy that people respect, and um, lots been written about the work he's done. It's definitely highly influential. Um, but I also think we need to think about the uh, work of Daniel T. Willingham over in America, the cognitive scientist and famous for his book, Why Don't Students Like School? And I think his idea that like memory is the residue of thought is a kind of underlining tenant that we can use to really help explain why independent practice might be an important part of uh, a student's education. Because it may be the only chance we get where they are on their own having kind of extended deliberate thought about something we're trying to teach them. We can do lots of things uh collaboratively you know we can can, there is things like effective group works really hard but there is things like that but there is a moment in time where it's probably most efficient that students spend some of their time working with just them and their thoughts and making sure that they're using those thoughts as appropriately as possible so they can kind of really help embed and encode information into their long-term memory maybe or understand the conditions by which knowledge should be used and they generate something that is kind of a testimony to their level of understanding um so yeah thanks that's a really um you should left me thinking that was a really good overview um so when you're observing lessons maybe in your role in your school or when you're visiting other places what does it look or feel like when you know that good independent practice is happening in a classroom so what sorts of strategies are teachers using, maybe? Yeah, I think it can look different in different subjects. I spend some time outside of science, but if we focus on science, I think what we end up having when it's working really well is um, kind of highly focused, highly concentrated activities mm-hmm. that the teacher knows the outcome they're looking for from them. They've been well chosen and the students are well equipped to do them. And so we have essentially these uh this kind of process where students, their brains are kind of, it sounds a bit artifarty, I suppose, but there's a kind of fizz in the room where the students are, you know, absorbed with their piece of work and are able to do it uh, efficiently and, f- and effectively and kind of independently. And I think at those points, we can probably, we can't guarantee learnings happen, 
but we can probably think, you know, these students that are embracing this activity with this level of concentration have probably got a good chance of getting some learning out of that activity. Yeah. So it's like it's it's you can hear the focus and it's probably a quiet classroom in, in my experience um, anyway. But I just wanted yeah. to get what you said there just about being equipped. So actually my school at the moment, um, independent practice is our big focus. Um, we're a new school and we've seen students like really don't want to say apathetic but they like really struggle to focus and, and struggle to do independent work and I think what we've brought it down to is one thing you know for students to be equipped is one the quality of what the independent work looks like and then but also what has happened before in the run-up to that so the checking for understanding and the guided practice maybe but so I suppose it'd be interesting to pick that apart a bit more so maybe let's first go for what the independent practice looks like so if you picked up a booklet in a school in a classroom where students were super focused, what is it that is in what are they what are they doing? Would you say? Well, I think that can vary somewhat because mm-hmm. there are lots of different ways of getting students to think hard about some things. But mm-hmm. I think the shortest path is probably a block of questions, especially in science, mm-hmm. which has got quite a high level of um specificity in terms of the kind of granular aspects of knowledge that students need to acquire um one of the easiest ways of doing that we can ask them a long uh kind of open-ended question and they can write an extended answer about some things uh but maybe most things are probably better off served with that being uh maybe the final activity and there being a lot of short sharp structured questions uh leading up to that and you know we can talk about the types of questions that work a bit later on maybe um, you know, and as, as someone that spent a fair bit of time writing quite a lot of questions in the last year, preparing uh, the biology and physics sections of Key Stage 3 Springboard Science uh, for Hodder out soon, um, <laughs> then, uh, you know, I've written, you know, a fair few hundred questions in, in the last few months. So um, I've got Would some th- experience of it. Yeah. Would this maybe now be a good time to just think about, you know, the talk that you gave in, uh, was it Manchester, where you were talking about designing slop? Would this be yeah. good? So, because yeah, whenever I introduce in a new school or something the idea of slop, like it's always very, very well received. Um, so maybe just tell us a little bit more about that. Okay, so slop is a term that um, was coined by Ruth and Adam. As far as I'm aware, it stands for shed loads of practice, at least officially. Um, <laughs> sometimes the S varies depending on the climate, um, and the idea is essentially of overlearning. So. Uh, contributing a environment and an activity for the students whereby in a short space of time they can go through uh, a extended amount of practice so multiple questions that ask things that are highly linked together in lots of different ways and what we're trying to do there is we're trying to kind of exemplify what um uh, Frederick Reif calls the kind of applicability conditions and the validity conditions of knowledge uh, are you guys, do you know Rife as a guy, Frederick no. Rife? So Rife uh, was a physicist and a physics lecturer, and he became very interested in cognitive science. And so he studied cognitive science and became essentially uh, a bit of a cognitive scientist as well. And he wrote kind of the least accessible but most amazing book on the kind of cognitive science of learning, specifically about in science lessons so he wrote this Mm -hmm. book called applying cognitive science to education 
thinking and learning in scientific and other complex domains. It's a very hard book to get hold of. It's not cheap. It's massive. And it is one of those books that is very dense, you know, but full of loads of really interesting insights. It's where if you've seen the kind of cognitive load equation that Adam mm-hmm. uses, you know, about task demand and re- okay. internal resources and things, that's there. Uh, that's from Rife as well. And um, yeah, he talks about this idea that we need to make sure practice uh, kind of demonstrates to students the kind of scope and range of acceptable answers so and how it should be used and when it shouldn't be used. And obviously explanation and checking for understanding will assess those things as well. But if we don't have a chance for the students to get kind of repeated practice at these things, then we don't know for sure it's going to stick you know, because maybe they need kind of two or three exposures to some of these ideas over, you know, a period of time. And so the easiest way for us to do that is to create resources that encourage that to happen, you know, through a scheme of learning or through a year or through multiple years, maybe depending on how we want to structure it. Yeah. I don't know. Cause oh, go on, Rachel. I'm sorry. Yeah. Cause the other thing I was wondering, um, something that reflecting on my own lessons, it's, I would love to have more independent practice, but what I tend to find is that, um, like, it, it just kind of either my explanations was taking on a bit too long, and then I don't have enough time. Sometimes I feel for them to really get to grips to it. So I guess my question would be like, you know, think about how what it would look like, what a good example of independent practice would look like in a classroom. Yeah. So can, can you can you think of like an? It might be a bit arbitrary, but it's like. How much time, like if we really think about it, how much time and how can we fit in the time for that? Or any suggestions on that? Yeah, so I think if we break that down a few ways, let's talk about an example first. So let's pick something really easy. Uh, let's just pick cell structure, you know, so all the subcellar structures uh, and all that stuff. Because I think people that are listening to this uh, most likely kind of already know in their head what the agreed knowledge that kind of a year seven student would need to know about these kind of subcellular structures, organelles, whatever you want to call them, and those things. How we introduce those, we could debate about, you know, in terms of do we introduce them all at the same time? Do we introduce animals first, plant cells? I don't, you know, let's just assume we've got to a point where we've introduced all the stuff about animal cells. So we're just, we're just introducing the animal cells and we've checked for understanding and now they're going to go into independent practice of that. Well, we've got a number of, options here about how we can encourage the students to think about these things we could get them to kind of label a cell for example we get them to label lots of different cells so that we can check that they understand the kind of boundaries of what a nucleus can and can't look like what a cell can and can't look like you know we can make some of them different shapes to each other i think some people call this like variation theory kind of thing with examples where they look at all the different um, possible examples there could be a non-example so you understand um, where those limits are we could ask them a load of kind of short answer questions things like uh, you know um, what is the organelle or subcellular structure that contains the genetic material and we're, we're looking to see in their book the answer of the nucleus and um, we could then ask them later on you know what is the nucleus and get them to think about that information from the other direction what we're doing here is we're creating conditions where the students are kind of linking these two concepts together, this definition of the nucleus and the word the nucleus and what the nucleus looks like. So we've got kind of a triangle of ideas that we're trying to kind of encourage the students to link together by getting these questions right. 
And then we can move on from kind of those uh, simple questions, but there, there could be quite a lot of them. Um, and then we could move on to maybe testing the boundaries of the common mistakes that students make. Uh, we could use uh, questions that are kind of what we call refutation texts, where we pose uh, a situation that students in where they've made a mistake and we get the student doing the independent work to correct that error. So you might mm. say like a student has looked at this diagram and we could show this diagram and they say they think it's an, uh, a plant cell or whatever because it's a rectangular shape. You know, are they correct and give a reason? But actually it's just a, rec you know, it's a ciliated cell or something. So it's kind of rectangular, but an animal cell. And so we're forcing the students to kind of think about where that boundary is, where does a plant cell start and an animal cell end in, in their kind of scope of knowledge. And by structuring questions that way, they're kind of depersonalized. So students that make the mistake, it's not their mistake. You know, the, the uh, kind of fictitious student is taking the heavy load of, of making the mistake. Um, and it's encouraging them not to make the same mistake because they're getting to correct it. Yeah, I love those I love types of questions. Idea. Yeah, I like that idea. And then we can kind I of, well, and especially in biology, we have kind of questions at the end that are kind of more application maybe. And mm -hmm. we tend to call these like weird disease questions, you know, <laughs> where you kind of think about, something that can go wrong, you know, and, and kind of get the students what to if. think like, what if, yeah, what yeah. if, you know, suggest how this would happen. Um, you know, this cell stuff, uh, the cell content doesn't really take to that very well, but other areas really do, you know, like reproduction, you can talk about like the idea of vasectomies and things like this, <laughs> you know, yeah. And like uh, the consequences of, um, you know, rubella and things like this on the female reproductive system. So we have these kind of tiering of questions where essentially you've got very, very simple, low demand uh, questions that students should be able to answer very, very quickly, but they help them make all these links between all the different components, the schema, for want of a better phrase. And then we maybe move into slightly more complex kind of refutation type questions, which are designed to draw the boundaries between ideas and use examples and non-examples or misconceptions. And then maybe towards the end, we have space for kind of extend more extended answer type questions uh more kind of application questions maybe there's an area of working scientifically that overlaps with this area so for in the case of cells we could think about putting some microscope uh kind of questions in at the end there because maybe we've already taught that and so we want to try and make links that cells are looked at under microscopes and gives ourselves an opportunity for like curriculum interleaving as well mm -hmm. and mm, that's based yeah. practice because I think everything you've just explained. So in in your talk in when was it May June time, I remember you you were talking about how in chemistry and physics there's more like procedural knowledge, right? And it's much easier to maybe say here's an equation, do it like ten times, then rearrange, then change the units. Whereas biology is more difficult. And I've I've yeah. honest I've really taken away what what I've learned from that. And I've and I've, my independent practice questions have come on a lot, I think, from from then, including, like you said, the ref refutation tasks and, and the interleaving at the end. Um, and it's been really, really valuable. So I was just going to maybe add in something as well that I find really useful with it is I, so if I, I give an explanation, I then might have some rehearsal. I know we talked about that in our, in our, mm. um, in our um, episode Previous with Tom. Episodes, yeah. And so, yeah, have like a rehearsal stage and a checking for understanding stage. And then my independent practice would be like, right, have 10 minutes working through this. And then something that's I found really powerful as well. And Adam, if I don't know, don't know if you have any experience with this, but we don't really talk about differentiation so much anymore. We talk more about adaptive teaching. 
But mm-hmm. I find this so powerful um, for that. It means that my in my classroom, I can, you know, some some classes might not get up to all of the all of the all of the questions at the end, for example. But everyone has the opportunity to, and and I can totally um, change that in in every lesson. So is that yeah? What do you think about adaptive teaching and, and slop? Yeah, I would think the the whole point of uh, like producing resources that are kind of slop amenable like in the case of procedural knowledge, like Ruth says, it's like really easy because you can bash out 25 questions. You know, it's just a maths lesson in there. Anyone can teach maths. Um, and uh, uh, it's not, there's no, yeah. So the kind of more declarative knowledge is much harder to do. Um, and I do think that you're much better off having a, a kind of suite of questions that tailor for all levels of ability. And yeah, then then some students may not progress through them. If you've kind of, crafted them carefully enough that they kind of increase in demand you can sometimes deliberately say to classes i only want you to do uh one to four seven nine and eight you know uh, nine and eleven maybe better because it's actually in numerical order um but anyway um and then with other classes you can be like well if you finish them then you can go back and do the other ones Mm -hmm. because i think so i use uh i don't use we don't use booklets a lot in our school i'm not in charge of our science department's um policies and uh, there are lots of teachers in our science department that choose to put the resources uh, kind of on, on the slides and have the students uh, have sticking worksheets and things like that. But even though even then, we still make sure there's enough content on each individual sheet. It's not about it being a booklet necessarily. It's about the concept of the, the kind of structuring of the questions. And it's better to have, you know, 20 questions and get the students to do 10 that you've targeted and even with the more able students, actually, they may need less practice on something. So you may get them to do less questions, which kind of seems counterintuitive, but they, they might do less of the early questions, especially in something procedural like isotopes or something like that, which, you know, once the student's done kind of three or four right, you can be pretty confident they can do all of them. Um, we might tell our most able students, OK, just do one, three, five, seven check them quickly okay now we're all moving on to the next topic or moving on to maybe harder questions or revisiting uh kind of prior knowledge questions review questions yeah because i think one of the things that that pop i popped up based on what i've just heard i really like some of the because like when you talk it was interesting that you talked about cell structure because that's what we're currently teaching uh in our school and and it's such a simple concept but like how do you make it not as it make it interesting and get them thinking because uh, I think I in my own practice reflecting I must admit I do a lot of like short questions all the time because it's almost like retrieval practice you just say what organelle controls cell activity which organelle contains cell sap like it's very easy to have those but it's about making it more dynamic or get them thinking a bit further so the I think one thing I did try to do but not enough was I would have I would have two sets of questions on the board um, so I, like on one set, I would say that it's called essential. So like if you are, if they, it's basically, they are going to be like slightly easier questions, like name the organelle that does this or name the organelle that does photosynthesis. Whereas on the other side, I would have challenge extension. And I would say you could choose to either do the essential or the challenge, but then the questions and the challenge would essentially ask the same thing, but then phrase differently and get them thinking differently. So for example, the what if questions or um i would say suggest and a specialized cells that have a lot and a specialized animal cell that have a lot more mitochondria 
ex- mm-hmm. suggest explain why you made that suggestion so that kind of stuff but it feels like maybe we could just do more of it in biology because like you said biology is quite tricky sometimes to yeah and i think as well with that these things as um you know I would say maybe the questions that you've put, maybe actually all of them should just be essential because even students who might choose to do challenge because they feel that they've got it Mm. will always benefit from doing the basics. And actually Mm. people who might not choose the challenge might actually, by the time they've got those basics down, be able to answer them. So, you know. Yeah, I think sometimes they they choose or they would have to start from essential and move on. But I think it kind of, sometimes it depends because, um, I think one example, it, it would be perfect for the weird what would that, weird disease question you said. Um, so it was the, when you teach the brain to like, your, like GCSE and you talk about the functions of different parts of the brain, like the cerebral cortex and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. we have the questions on what is the function of or which part of the brain controls this or what is the function of, of the cerebellum. Whereas on the challenge bit is uh, which part suggests which part of the brain is damage in each of these patients and i will list out like mm-hmm. a list of symptoms yeah they yeah. cannot balance and stuff like that yeah and they find that quite interesting stuff. yeah exactly and they find it quite interesting because then it makes them think okay what does that symptom match up to in terms of the mm-hmm. function and then it matches back up yeah so, so suggest questions i think that's definitely in my like slop things that i'll definitely um build towards because they're the types of questions especially a level that i find my students um and, and former students have always really struggled with so yeah and so I think, I think um, there's a real sweet yeah, spot, sorry, just to jump no, in, yeah. in terms of the number of questions. Mm-hmm. Like we say mm. shed loads of practice and people will talk, you know, we'll talk about it like, you know, there are 162 questions in this booklet, uh, you know, and that's like, it seems like a really a large number of questions. Um, but maybe in an individual kind of equivalent of a lesson's worth, there may be 25 questions. And it may be that 25 is kind of, relatively unobtainable but we want to make sure we've got all those questions for our most uh effective students to kind of get through um but actually like you said there's about maybe 15 questions that need to be done and they're going to be done in two blocks one of seven and one of eight um because i think one of the things that's really important is independent practice doesn't have to be long it mm. just has to be effective for the time it needs to be for the students to think about that you know, I think one of the misconceptions people have about booklet work is is a kind of maybe um, a misconception idea that students come in, the teacher talks for 10 minutes, then they say, just do questions one to 50. And then that's the end of the lesson. You know, it's some kind of like lazy teaching um, because they think that the students just coming in and doing mindless book work. You know, they're doing all these questions. But while there may be blocks where the students are working in silence and focused highly on their tasks, um, those blocks could be, you know, six, seven, eight minutes. They don't have to be really, really long. What they have to be is very effective and very efficient. That's that's what it needs to be. So I know that, you know, just because all the questions are written, it doesn't need to mean that the topic is taught once the booklet is finished. The booklet is there as a as a kind of menu for the teacher to craft from to a certain degree. And I that's... think that's where your behavior management, like the teach like a champion behavior management strategies can come in really, really useful. And someone has written on this. You'll have to remind me who. But for example, if you start off um, your independent practice task, you've got eight minutes to do this. Then you stand at the front and you watch them all work in silence and you don't move. Um, is this past as Oh, perch, yeah. The one? yeah, yeah. And you yeah, do not move one. from there. You positively narrate people who are starting. And then, like, within a minute or so, everyone is silent working. 
then you can start to circulate. And it's this um, the 30, 30, 30, isn't it? Yeah, 3030, um, I think. 3030. Yeah, I think that's you're looking one. at Adam Boxer, actually. I think he definitely yes. wrote about this um, before. So, yeah, teach like a champion. I, I, I find that really powerful then. So, in, in combination with the independent practice, the behavior management strategies that you're using to, to make those conditions. Um, it's good as yeah. well. Yeah, I think okay. after after the preparation for independent practice, because I think you know, if we if we consider analogy of like a magic trick, you know, people remember the the bit at the end of the magic trick that's called the prestige. Yeah, but the prestige only works in a magic trick if all the setup is done correctly, if they have you know all the components in place, they've misdirected appropriately, they're and and it's the same with kind of independent practice. That's the thing that may go in the books. That's the thing that may count in certain schools with their kind of um, accountability, their book look, you know, how much work is being done in the lesson. But there's a lot of constituents that need to be got right in the explanation, in the checks for understanding sections to kind of get the students in a place where they, it's kind of a foregone conclusion that they're going to be successful. You know, if you haven't got them to a point where you know they can do at least the the fundamental questions, the kind of component questions you need, then you're probably they're not ready for independent practice. And I think after those conditions, the second barrier to effective independent practice is, is quite frankly the teacher. Teacher led disruption is a huge barrier to uh, classes getting on. I you know as a you know looking back on my own practice, I can think of loads of examples where I'm the reason that people stopped working you know because i wanted to help one student so i just spoke to them across the classroom you know or i wanted to get them on task so i broke the silence you know myself by saying how happy i was with everyone it's weird to think isn't it that you can like praising students within the first minute of the activity might actually cause them to go off track you know because you're all of a sudden introducing this extra distraction into the environment um and so I think teacher-led disruption and all the work um, Doug Lamov has done on trying to establish these conditions is really, really important. Yeah. You also get that classic, the teacher going, um, why are you not doing any work? Like I've explained to you why you're sitting there doing nothing. And actually it is the teacher's fault and they need to go and re-explain that because no one gets it. Um, yeah. And there's also loads of lazy students. So, Well, that is true. It's just diagnosing that properly. Yeah, if those yes. students have done it on whiteboards, if they've if they've got the check for understanding, they got that all right, then um, they can definitely attempt everything first and, and wait a couple of minutes until um, they've had a go at things before they ask for help. Um, I went to a school uh, quite a while back now, and um, they'd accidentally created a culture whereby the the students realised that if they were stuck, it was fine, and the teacher would come round and help them. So the teacher would explain everything. The explanation was solid. It was finite. You know, you could understand what to do. But what they did is as soon as they set them to task, all the kids in the class were kind of clever enough and savvy enough to know that it was much easier for them to just put their hand up and not do any work and wait for the teacher to come around and kind of give them one-to-one tuition, essentially, than for them to actually uh, commit to things. So we've got to be careful. We want to help our students. That makes sense but we don't want to accidentally create a climate whereby uh, the students get an easier ride by opting out instead of like actually trying things for themselves. Um, So I might just move on to the last question, Adam, if that's all right. Um, (laughs) Just thinking now about, so, well, like I said, in my school, independent practice is a big focus now. So if you, if you've got heads of department, lead practitioners who are listening, 
what would you say are some good steps to now start taking to to successfully implement or um, embed effective independent practice? What needs to be happening? Yeah, so I think there's quite a few curriculum planning issues that need to be considered first. So we need to think about what the kind of, um, so apologies for using these words, but kind of the intent of the curriculum is and the uh, outcomes we're expecting the students to have. And then we need to kind of look at our independent practice and think, are the activities we're getting students to do sufficient to achieve those those aims? So if we decide that we want all our students to know, you know, the, the five subcellular structures of the animal cell, then we take that lesson, we look at the resources we currently have, and we think, you know, do we have opportunities for the students to kind of uh, overlearn those things and practice them there and then? And do we have opportunities for them to practice in the subsequent lessons as well because we need to recognize if we're not spacing this practice over time it doesn't really matter if they do 50 questions in the the lesson on animal cells because they're not going to retain that long term because we're not offering them the opportunity to revisit it later on so there's very there's a lot of structural work to be done now luckily there are places that can help you so on the CogSciSci website, we have a, a series of kind of training modules, and one of them is about shed loads of practice, and it under uh, it kind of underlines all the main principles of the practice. It has activities to do, um, and and blogs to read on the kind of uh, CogSci behind these kind of activities and why they're effective. Uh, we've got lots of resources that are shared on the resources page, where teachers have volunteered to uh, share their resources, which can give you either a starting point you know, to make your own resources or maybe something that you just adapt slightly from what already exists. At the end of the day, most of us are teaching roughly the same content. So it might be useful to kind of beg, borrow and steal from those resources. Um, I have and- to say that website page is what totally revolutionized my teaching. Like I wouldn't be where I am without that that page of people's booklets and resources. I would be, I would have probably quit because I hated making PowerPoints late at night. Yeah, it's really tough, isn't it, on teachers when they have to make all their own resources, especially mm-hmm. when uh, we end up repeating it so much. So, you know, it's good that we can provide an opportunity for people to, you know, share their resources and maybe offer some kind of works example for other teachers to follow and improve on. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I have booklets up there from, I don't know, 2018, 2017, maybe. And yeah. I'm sure there are loads of teachers that have taken those booklets and made much better things their mind you know and added to them and improved them and in fact i think last uh summer someone like reshared on twitter they were like i've just made my booklets for the year based on the work of x y and z and i now use their ones with my mm-hmm. uh year 11 classes because they're fantastic you know much better than the ones i did there's a there's an evolution that's going on yeah. there and people are kind of improving on original design which i think is exactly the right thing to do and everyone's yeah. subject is the same, but everyone's school is different and everyone teaches slightly different. So the kind of resources we use should reflect that a little bit. So we should be feeling free to kind of adapt and change them as we need to. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. I think the resource design is, is really powerful in that. Um, and I think as well, some people might have a tendency to think, right, independent to change independent practice, well, I need to have certain behaviour in the classroom. Whereas actually I think it is, it is everything that leads up to the independent practice so the explanation the resource that's available the checks for understanding and the behavior will just help to create the conditions but isn't um it's not going to revolutionize it i don't think i think behavior is a really interesting one because 
yes, there are some things you can do as a teacher because you can, you know, follow your school systems better. You can uh, manage behavior in your classroom better. There is a skill to that. Um, but there's also kind of a school culture aspect to that and, and the kind of what is expected in different schools is different, you know, and students will kind of always try to bend whatever rules are in place. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I think behavior is a massive, uh, massive barrier um, when it when there's not the conditions in place that can get students to work uh, kind of on their own, you know, without disrupting others, because mm -hmm. all students need to be able to kind of think um, and they can't really do that if there's lots going on. They're too easily distracted. Okay. Yeah, I think so. Um, thank you very much. I think there I definitely, I feel like there is a lot for me to kind of consider after <laughs> listening to what you just said. Because I, I think I definitely one thing is I always felt that I've been trying to give them loads of practice, but it feels like the same type of questions over and over again. And um, and I was always thinking, oh, maybe I need to give them loads and loads of questions, and that would count as independent practice. But as you mentioned, one of the key thing is it's the fact that um, it's it's the effective. It should be effective practice, and the time that you spend on it, and the number of questions that you give them shouldn't affect. Shouldn't be the reason of something being independent practice. And I think that's 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 really important. And and I def that that actually kind of makes me feel quite happy because that means I could just focus on making sure I have a few really good questions I can get them to practice, and that would be good practice of independent mm -hmm. independent practice. I keep saying practice, but that was um yeah that was really really helpful. What about yeah. you, Shelley? What do you think? Well, I think I say this like every episode, but like independent practice is one of my favorite things to think about. I I do spend far too long making booklets. Um, and, and designing questions. And I already said, Adam, but the, the talk you gave at Manchester really has helped to change that. Um, so Rachel, maybe I, I can share some of those booklets with you actually, if you want to see yeah. um, what that looks like. Oh, uh, I think I've, I'll put that the link to my blog again in, in the sh in the notes, because um, yeah, I think hopefully I've, I'm designing some quite good practice and I'm, you'd love to hear any feedback if anyone's got any. Um, but yeah, just another great conversation thanks adam for joining no worries thanks for having me thank you yeah so we'll um as usual we'll put we'll compile all of the different references that was mentioned in this uh episode like all of the blogs and the different books frederick frederick rife you mentioned mm -hmm. yeah so we'll probably we'll try to compile a list and we'll put some links onto the description um but again if you want to know more or want to like kind of read more of what Adam's written, then obviously please uh, look at his website, uh, Reflections on Education. We'll put the link as well. And obviously his book, Middle mm -hmm. Leadership Mastery. Um, we'll probably talk a lot about well, various different things as well. And um, But um, another thing is obviously the Cox ISI stuff uh, on either on Twitter to get in touch or the website have loads of the resources as mentioned about the training modules. I think um, they, they've been made some time ago, but we haven't, gone into details of that after it was made uh, but yeah the training modules are fantastic with loads of activities which is which is great and the resources but yeah loads of lo loads of takeaway from today's episode so thank you again adam for doing this with us no worries thanks for having me all right i think we'll wrap this up thank you very thank you. much catch you soon catch you soon